Yes, you can turn to Second Samuel chapter one. And before we read the word, uh, just a couple quick announcements to make. Uh, if you haven't picked up a baby, baby bottle, there's some back there. Uh, that's for your options medical. Uh, and if fill it up with cash, with with checks or whatever needs be. Uh, be sure you go out with one, and then when you fill it up, return it to Elena and Chris in the back, and they'll get it down to your options medical, which is a uh, pregnancy crisis center, uh, faith-based, and we're glad to be able to assist our, our sisters down there that are working so hard to try to save lives, and we value their ministry, and let's show that by contributing to that work. Uh, for those of you that know about Mike Payne, he ha- is in the hospital being operated on right now uh, on his gallbladder removal. And uh, keep him in your thoughts. And hopefully you'll be able to walk out of there late, maybe today or t- at least by tomorrow. And it's been a long week for our brother Mike, uh, suffering through the pain that he has been. Uh, Sister Sandy, you have an announcement. Where are you? Sister, go ahead. Okay, thank you. And the Sisters in the Spirit are having a meeting on Wednesday. Does some sister want to speak up on behalf of that? I think it's at Doreen's house. I don't know the details, but it is in the bulletin. Hopefully you know about it anyway. And then the last announcement is more of a praise announcement. It's, it's a joy to know when someone gets saved. The Bible even says that there's a joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. One of the biggest burdens we have as parents, isn't it, to see our children saved? Well, a praise goes to the Lord for the salvation of Gabby Campbell. Mark and Ann Campbell's daughter has been recently saved, and they're rejoicing in the Lord. Aren't you, Brother Mark and Sister Ann? Um, They, like us, have five children, and just to see one saved is just so exhilarating. So we rejoice with you, brother and sister, and hope that the Lord will save more of our children and maybe some that are in this room this morning that are not yet saved, yet brought up in a Christian home. May the Holy Spirit speak to you this morning as well. So we're going to read in Second Samuel chapter 1. But before I do the reading, I just want to finish up with... Uh, some comments from last week. We were uh, preaching on Saul going to the medium instead of the mediator when he went to the so-called witch of Endor. And I may have left you hanging, like what was my position on it as I presented some of the optional views that one could hold as far as calling up the dead and communicating with the dead, which seems to have been the case. Well, my position would be based on... A couple of different things. One primarily would be the fact that when she tried to do her necromancing, she was shocked by the fact that she had actually seen Samuel. And it says there in the scripture that she screamed from the top of her lungs. She was herself shocked that what had transpired was beyond the capacity that she had. It's sort of like the magicians in the days of Pharaoh. Remember when Moses was doing his plagues and then they were being imitated by the magicians? And then when Moses struck the ground and suddenly the gnats appear, 
the magician said, this is nothing other than the finger of God and we cannot imitate it. Well, I think that's the same thing with the witch of Endor, that this was beyond her capacity and God was sovereignly overruling this in bringing Samuel into the picture. And the fact is, Samuel was communicating and communicating truth. And the thing that he said primarily was to Saul, who was anxious about the battle that they were going to be going into with the Philistines, wanting to know the outcome, and Samuel has to deliver the bad news tomorrow, both you and your sons will be with me. And some have interpreted that to be, and I mentioned Charles Wesley in one of his poems, seems to certainly ascribe to uh, that saying that, Saul, therefore, must have been a child of God if he went to be where Samuel was and Jonathan, being Saul's son, went to the same place. Well, it had, as I said last week, had really nothing to do with going to be with Samuel spiritually, but rather to be with Samuel in the realm of the dead, in death. The fact is that Saul was slain on the battlefield Then his body was taken, his head was taken off, he was beheaded, and his body was nailed to a wall in Bethshan. And later that body was removed by the Jabesh Gileadites who took the body off of the wall, burnt the body. That's one of the few, I think maybe the only specific example of a cremation of the body. That was a headless body and the bones were preserved and the bones were buried. So the point I'm trying to make, and and also Jonathan, by the way, was hung on the wall as well, that tomorrow both you and your sons will be with me. They died the day they breathed their last breath and were with Samuel in the place of the departed spirits, the realm to which the underworld is and the spirits of people who die would go. Now, of course, that's an Old Testament scenario. And I had mentioned that in the New Testament, we have a uh, aggrandizement of the doctrine of the afterlife. Stephen says to the Lord today, uh, rather to the thief on the cross, Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's a shift, there's an there's a, uh, increase of revelation that is given in the New Testament. Well, anyway, I just wanted to be sure that I finished that up from last week, and hopefully that can be somewhat helpful to you. So, turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 1. It is, of course, always helpful to be reading along with the preaching series. And as you know, the series is on the life of David. And it's very difficult uh, from a preaching standpoint to preach like you would in the New Testament. You go through the book of Ephesians, you're going to go verse from, ver- from verse to verse to verse consecutively in a very uh, legitimate, uh, strong, uh, expositional way, but it's not quite the same when you're reading a New Testament narrative like we are of the life of David. So what I'm trying to do is highlight some of the key points of David's life that we can learn from his experiences, the faith and the flaws of David that can benefit us in the New Testament because these things are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. So we want to gain some benefit from this. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1 in verse 11. 
Then David took hold of his clothes, that's his own clothes, and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. This is David's reaction, by the way, to the news that was brought to him by an Amalekite that Saul and Jonathan and his sons and the Israelites were slain in the battle against the Philistines. And this individual Amalekite who meets David, who had no knowledge of the outcome, he's informed first by this Amalekite individual that Saul was dead. So his reaction was that he stripped his clothes off, as did all of the other men. And verse 12 says, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. That's the reaction that David and his men had after the report that was given to them. Let's review just for a minute the relationship that Saul and David had with one another. David was Saul's personal Musician. Saul was jealous over the fact that the woman praised him more than they did him after the victory that they had wrought over the Philistines and particularly over Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. You remember, and from that moment, Saul I, David, in jealousy, he was envious of him at that point. That was a turning point. Following this, he cast a javelin at him. He pledged his daughter to him in hopes that he would be slain by the Philistines because the dowry was to be 100 foreskins of Philistines. And David went beyond the 100 and slew 200 and did not have any injury to himself, which was what Saul had hoped would occur when he was given this charge. If you want my daughter, you need to provide 100 foreskins of the Philistines. He asked David to gather all of them. Now, another, right after that, again, Saul, with a javelin, seeks to try to kill him. He sent to try to slay him when he was with his daughter-in-law, married. And then chapters 23, 24, and 26, Saul is in hot pursuit of David to try to kill him. Now with that in the background, let's read what is known as an elegy. Not a eulogy, but an elegy. A eulogy is saying words or good words about a person that has been past this life. Someone who has died. Well, an elegy is really a poem about someone who dies. And this is what David writes in poetic fashion. And David had the gift of writing. After all, he wrote the majority of the Psalms. And here we have a sample of the skill that the Lord had given to David in writing. So let's look at the words. We've seen something about the reaction. Now let's listen to David's heart of words towards what had transpired in verse 17. And following, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. What is that book? 
It's an extra biblical book. It was probably a, a book of the chronicle of the history of the Jews, of the Israelites at that time. It was not a canonical book. It would simply be a book of records. And it was recorded in that book of records. The fact that David might quote it or someone would quote that book or a book that's outside of the canon doesn't necessarily mean or does not mean that they are canonizing the book, that they are looking at that literature as if it's sacred literature inspired by the Holy Spirit like the rest of the canonical books of the Bible. None whatsoever. But he is simply stating a fact that it is recorded in the book of Jasher. Reading on. He said, verse 19, Your glory, talking about Saul, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Verse 21. You mountains of Gilboa, which is where they all perished, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not or no longer anointed with oil. Verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothes you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Verse 25, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of woman. How mighty, how the mighty have fallen in the weapons of war perish. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Now, the last time where we left David off was in Ziklag, where he remained there for a year and four months, which was in Philistine Philistine territory. And we said that that was probably the lowest ebb in David's life to think that he would actually be sleeping, so to speak, with the enemies. And that's kind of what he was doing in a way. But he was really seeking refuge from Saul. So we left that off in chapter 27 In the beginning of 28, we find that the Philistines are gathering their forces together to go against the Israelites. And that's when Saul panicked and he goes to the witch of Endor. That's the whole rest of the 28th chapter. The 29th chapter, when the Philistines are preparing to go into battle, it's discovered that David is in the midst of of the company. Because when the battle begins to brew, David is compelled to have to enlist in the forces. But after certain Philistines review David being among them, he is providentially released from military combat because they wouldn't trust him. They remembered his past heroics and they did not want to put him on the battlefield with them as an ally 
they still viewed him as a likely enemy. But as a result, David was relinquished from having to fight against the children of Israel, his people. But then upon returning with his men to Ziklag, when he's released from Philistine enrollment, so to speak, obligation, he goes back to his temporary hometown of Ziklag, and what does he find out, him and his men? That the city has been ransacked. It's been burnt down. They looted the city, and not only that, they took all the wives and the children, whole families were captives. The Amalekites had ransacked the whole town. But amazingly, David, with God's assurance, is able to recover all that was taken. Even the spoils of the Amalekites were recovered. Meanwhile, the Philistines and Israeli conflict was a huge devastation of loss of life, including Saul and his three sons, as Samuel had predicted. So the battle went on, even though David had his his event going on in Ziklag, at that point is when the Philistines are going up against the Israelites. And that's the 31st chapter. And this is what we find. News reached David through the report. And that's the second Samuel chapter 1. This is important to note this. That an Amalekite escapee who informs David of Saul and Jonathan's doom. He falsifies a claim that he had been the one who was responsible to putting Saul out of his misery by plunging his sword into him. He presents David with the arm bracelet of Saul that he took off Saul's dead body and he also took Saul's crown off him, now presenting it to David and expecting that he was going to be rewarded for his action against Saul. And he's stunned to see David's response to what seemed to be a good gesture on the part of the Amalekite. I have the crown of the king, the anointed one, and I'm passing it on to you, David. That seems very legitimate. Not so with David. David saw saw Saul in a way that an Amalekite couldn't see Saul. Just like the way you and I see Christ, the world can't see Christ the same way as we see the Lord Jesus. They may believe in Him in their head, but they may not believe in Him in their heart. There's a difference between a believer in Jesus. You can be a believer in Jesus in your head, but not be a believer in Jesus in your heart. And that's the difference between a Christian and someone who's in Christendom. The difference between being a real Christian and a nominal Christian. One pays lip service. The other one has a hot affection for Christ. We can say sincerely, we love the Lord. And the death of our King means something to us. To an Amalekite, he had the facts about the death. Although he twists them, of course. But it was correct that Saul was lying dead on the battlefield. David's heart yearned, mourned. He wept. He reacted in a very humble fashion over the news. Proverbs 24.17 says, Rejoice not when your enemy falleth, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. 
David forfeits killing Saul. Remember that back in the chapters that we read before when he was right there. Saul is sound asleep. He had the sword in his hand. He could have very easily have slain Saul, but he chose not to. We would say he chickened out. But no, he didn't really chicken out. His conscience had gripped him at those points and he refused to put to death, you could say, his nemesis. Because in the 26th chapter, verse 10, this is, this is the reason that David gives why he would not kill Saul. He said there's three ways that a person can die. And I have looked at that, those verses and I thought to myself, those have timeless application. How are you and I going to die? How do people die? Well, the, this scripture, 26.10, this is what David's summary is, how people will die. First, the Lord will strike him. Second, his time will come to die. Or third, he will descend into battle. What is David saying here? I'm not going to touch him. I'm going to leave it all in God's hand for God to do what He is going to sovereignly allow. The Lord could strike him dead. I'm not going to strike him dead. His time may come to die like David and Abraham and others who died of old age. Or the third possibility, well, he will descend into battle and perish. And that seems to have been the case, right? From 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel verse chapter 1 as well. We have reference to Saul dying on the battlefield. He was slain. And let's get the, let's get the picture right here. Because some have wondered, well, how did he, did he die? First, he got wounded in the battle. And it was an irreversible condition that he was in. You could say that it was a, he was looking for a euthanasia intervention. He wanted to die well, to die without, well, fear that maybe he might be slain by an enemy. That was his primary concern. But he also, it was also a quick way to end his misery, his suffering. So he asked his armor bearer, as he's wounded and bleeding right there in the battlefield, he pleads with his armor bearer, kill me, put me to death. I don't want the uncircumcised to come and kill me. His armor bearer refused to do that. And this is so common in Saul's life. People that he asked to do things. He's the king. When it came to killing the priests, he asked the young men to kill the priests. Back in chapter 21, I believe it was, they refused him. So many times Paul, uh, Saul gets no respect from his servants. Which tells you something about his kingship and the way in which he lorded over people. He didn't have their respect and that's why they would not bow to his desires whenever he was asked. So this armor bearer refuses to put him to death. So Saul ends up, it says, chapter 31, he falls upon his own sword, you could say committing suicide, and dies. The next chapter, really just a few verses later, this Amalekite, who apparently must have been walking through the battlefield, found the body of Saul and had taken his crown and his, his uh, arm bracelet off of him. Two very, you could say, uh, symbolic pieces 
of his armor and was bringing them now to David in expectation that he's going to receive accolades for this. That he's going to be praised for what he's done. And he tells them that Saul was about to die and I did him a favor as he asked me to put him to death and that's what I did. And this is the rewards from that death that I have for you. He was falsifying the claims in hopes that he could appear to be the hero. Well, he actually, in David's eye, was viewed as being the villain. You put your hands, as it says in verse 14 of that same chapter, uh, chapter, be, uh, chapter 2, 2 Samuel 1.14, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? He's the Lord's anointed. The Bible tells us that Israel was asking for a king and it gave them a king after their own desires. It says in uh, Hosea 13.11, I gave them a king in mine anger, but I took him away in my wrath. You know, sometimes we analyze a person's death in a certain way and yet there's a whole different viewpoint from the divine side. God took him away in his being slain on the battlefield. And that's acknowledged by the book of Hosea chapter 13 in verse 11. Now David, after hearing the news, gives a remarkable elegy. E-L-E-G-Y. This is a poetic eulogy, you could say, of a deceased friend. We had read earlier the opposition that he got from Saul. Saul could not stand David. He despised David. He wanted to slay David. He wanted to kill him. He was envious of him. And we we are baffled. It's really baffling why he had such hostility and animosity in his heart towards David. I mean, David was had a commendable testimony. Instead of 100 foreskins, he gets 200 foreskins. When he's told that he would be able to have the king's daughter, he says, who am I that I should be the son-in-law of the king? He was humbled about that. David was the, the lyricist who played this beautiful music to help Saul in his times of anxiety. His own son, Saul's own son, Jonathan, loved David like he loved his own soul and they had a love for one another. Wouldn't you want to have your child have a friend that's bonded together? A man of God like David who was a man after God's own heart? Not so with Saul. He couldn't read any of this right spiritually. He had a very confused mind and a very distorted heart in these regards. But David in this elegy, he displays his writing capabilities. He's display, his display here in this literary, you would call it a masterpiece. It's another indication of his writing skills to amass so many Psalms. And by the way, the book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. You often read through your Bible and you'll see a, a quote from the Old and it's from Isaiah or from Genesis or from whatever book. Or the old. But the book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. And David wrote the majority of those psalms. Someone says about this elegy, 
His name is T.H. Robinson. He says, We know nothing of David that presents him in a better light. What he says, which is written and put in the book of Jasher and recorded here as well, is such that we must say, Wow! The lamentation begins in verse 8, verse 19, and ends in verse 27 with the words, How are the mighty fallen? You would think that he would be glad that his enemy was put to death. You would think that David would rejoice over the fact that now, oh good, he's out of the way. I'm anointed by Samuel as well. Remember, there are two anointed ones. One was public and publicly known Saul. The other one was David that was more private and privately known. A few of David's followers would have been familiar with that. There were many, though, who followed David and recognized the character of David that far outweighed that of Saul. But nevertheless, he did not trump himself and try to blow his own horn, so to speak, and make a big deal out of himself. He kept himself in a very low profile. Can you imagine what the Saudi Arabians thought when Obama, excuse me, Obama, Osama bin Laden was killed? Or the Iraqis when Saddam Hussein died? Or the Philistines when Goliath was slain? Well, this is how the Israelites should have felt when Saul was slain. Your glory, your glory is on the mountain, on Mount, the mountain of Gilboa. Think of that. That he's calling Saul the glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. That is on the Mount of Gilboa. David wanted Israel to feel the sorrow of Saul's death. But he also wanted to veil it from the enemies rejoicing over it. He didn't want the Philistines to revel over the loss of Israel's champion like the way the Israelites reveled over the defeat of Goliath and over the other Philistines. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And you know, when, when David slew Saul, excuse me, when David slew Samson, he too decapitated him as well. Brought his head to Jerusalem. When Saul was slain, the Philistines did the same thing. Chapter 31. They decapitated him. You know what they did with his head? They delivered it to all the major cities. Why? Both Goliath and Saul were decapitated and transported like a trophy to their people in the public market to display, to be displayed as a victory symbol. If you've got somebody's head, you know that that person is dead. I remember when we had to wring the necks of the turkeys in Boy Scouts and I would hold the head of the turkey in my hand and see that the body was dead because they don't exist uh, together. When they're separated, it's dead. And that's what happened. To carry the head was like the biggest trophy that could be displayed. 
Just like when the Patriots or the Red Sox win their championship, they're heralding it. They're going from all, all around Massachusetts and New England to all of the different cities and they're celebrating their victory. Well, that's what the heads were of these two champions, so to speak, Saul and Goliath. But you know, the language of David's here is remarkable. Matthew Henry, in commenting on these verses, in a general way, says, Love teaches us to make the best we can of everybody and to say nothing of those we can say no good, especially when they are gone. And David definitely was selective in his language. He didn't praise Saul for his piety. But at the same time, he did not bring out the evils of Saul that he could very well have done so. And this was not a public funeral. As a matter of fact, I don't know that we even have an example of really a public funeral like the way we would have in our days where the body is actually laid out and all the people, family and friends come together. Uh, we have some samples similar, but not exactly like the way we would do it. And there's nothing wrong with the way we do it. Saul, Saul's body was not in David's presence. It's only, it's only the words that he heard from the Amalekite that, that, that Saul was dead that causes this sort of gut-feeling, knee-jerk reaction response of David's with deep lamentation in, in his soul. And in this these passages from verses 17 to 27, we have Saul's name mentioned five times. Jonathan's name is mentioned four times. What are some of the things that he says about Saul? Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high. He's calling him glory, the glory of Israel. The mighty have fallen. He doesn't want to have it published. He doesn't want the name of Saul to be utilized by the enemy. Look at what we did. Look at the victory that we had. David despised that possibility. Even the mountain itself was sort of criticized for having had the bodies of both Saul and Jonathan laying there dead upon its mountain. And he praises them for their mighty feats on the battlefield. He says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. One of the things that sometimes for us in the 21st century and in the Western Hemisphere, where there seems to be more civility than in other parts of the world, it's difficult sometimes to read the Old Testament because it's filled with bloodshed and warfare. And some people, the world of course, is very turned off by it, not understanding ancient history and how territories and governments and, 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 and the vying of nation against nation, how it operated at that time. To understand that kind of background is helpful to understand why war was so prevalent in the Old Testament. But David's reaction here, especially towards Saul, it's understandable, Jonathan, he loved him. And we've all been to funerals. And you must admit that there are some that really, really go deep in the soul. That really, really hurt. Maybe a, a young child, a freak accident. We could think of lots of different examples. 
one of your closest friends, one of your closest relatives, a parent or a child, etc. All those kinds of deaths go very, very deep in the soul. That's what Jonathan was to David. They were like this. They were united. They, they loved each other. They were bonded to one another. They were faithful to one another. But for Saul, we still wonder, how, where did this come from? How could he even forgive this, this brute who, who hounded him to distant places so he could kill him? A little boy was asked the question one time, what is forgiveness like? Think of it. This is said to a little child. And the child's response was this, as to what is forgiveness like. He says it's like the odor that flowers breathed when they are trampled upon. It's like the odor that flowers breathe when they are trampled upon. Well, David was trampled upon. And yet, what comes out of him on this occasion? It's nothing but a breath in fragrance of, of sweetness, of peace. He does not, like I say, bring out his piety, but he does not bring out any of the flaws of Saul's life, and especially being his number one enemy. But I think what's the key here is that Saul, excuse me, David's irritation with the audacity of this young Amalekite who would, and it's a false claims, and David doesn't know what the, the, the true facts, he's basing on the false claims that the Amalekite is trying to take credit for Saul's death, and he is totally annoyed that this man would, would have the nerve to raise his sword against the Lord's anointed. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now look at he's an Amalekite. He could say, look at I'm not an Israelite. I have no fidelity towards your king. He meant nothing to me. Matter of fact, he was an enemy. And keep this in mind too. Remember, one of the, one of the biggest flaws in Saul's history was that when he was told to destroy, Samuel gave him these instructions from the Lord, to destroy in, among the Amalekites everything that breathed. Man, woman, child, animal, everything. And what did he do? He spared the flock in some of the men. Some of the Amalekites were spared. And it wouldn't be, a, uh, it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibility, you might think, that an Amalekite could be the one that actually slayed Saul. You know, the, the truth, though, you could say behind this sort of idea is that if you don't deal with something in your life, if you think that you can just sort of dangle it out there, because at this time it doesn't look so bad, you better watch out because that may come and haunt you in the future. If you don't put away the pornography out of your life and just say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to go to it, and you still leave it in the background, it's going to come back to you. Or some other maybe lingering sin in your life, some bad habit, whatever it could be, some addiction that you may have, that you may have for the moment sort of uh, put it to the side, but you haven't put it to death. You haven't totally obliterated it. And that's what God would want us to do with the Amalekites is to obliterate those things of the flesh that can, can still kick up against us and destroy us. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's 
anointed. The Lord's anointed. I want to close with talking about the Lord's anointed. And if you haven't been listening uh, up to this point, I hope you will now. Why weren't you afraid to destroy the Lord's anointed? What's so special about being anointed? To be anointed, by the way, is the same word in the New Testament for Christ. Jesus Christ. Mashiach means anointed one. He is the anointed one. There were three persons in the Old Testament that had this special calling and privilege to be anointed. They were what? A prophet, a priest, and a king. Jesus is the final anointed one. Keep in mind, Saul, when he came on the scene, it says the first thing that we have reference about Saul, he was looking for lost donkeys. His uncle's lost donkey. Was it his uncle, I believe, or his father? I can't remember. One of the two. He was looking for lost donkeys. Jesus coming into the world was for what? The Son of Man is to come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost. Our final king, our great king, the king of kings, has come to for the purpose of seeking those that were lost. What kind of people that are lost? Not lost donkeys, praise the Lord, but lost sheep. We were a sheep that had gone astray. But now we've returned to the shepherd and bishop of our soul. First Samuel, excuse me, first Peter 2 verse 25. Jesus at His incarnation, his, his conception in the womb of Mary, is classified as an anointing. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, and that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus was anointed at His conception. And in His, in his humanity, His whole life, He was the anointed prophet of gods. At the age of about 30, it tells us, that Jesus went down to the Jordan River to be baptized. The age of 30. The age of 30 was the year of a priest that he would be allowed to function in his capacity in a priestly fashion. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit that descended from heaven and now Jesus is the anointed priest. But what about the last one? Anointed prophet at his birth? Anointed priest at his baptism? What about the third anointing? At the Father's right hand. He says to the Son, Son, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus had promised the disciples, you wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with the Spirit and the power from on high. And Jesus received the promise of the Father, which was that the Father gave to the Son the anointing, the Spirit, that He in, in turn turns over and conveys it and shares it, as it were, with His people. There's two things here. The first one I want to say about that, Jesus is anointed King. We admit that He was crucified as King of the Jews, 
But his kingship, remember, was not accepted even by himself here below. They wanted to make Jesus a king on one occasion in John chapter 6. Is it? And it says, in Jesus escaped in midst. He didn't want, he, it wasn't the time. Even Satan said to the Lord, said, all these kingdoms will I give you if you will just bow down and worship me. No, it wasn't the time for Jesus to enter into his kingship rule. But the time did come when he was raised up from the dead and then ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The highest exalted place in the universe. He's enthroned with glory and power and honor. The Ancient of Days had come to the Father and the Father glorified His Son, giving Him a name above every name. What an anointing that was. That anointed one was the one like Saul who was nailed to a wall. Jesus, the anointed one, was nailed to the cross. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Just think of the guilt that mankind has for putting the Lord of glory to death. Listen to some of the Scriptures that talks about that. Just a few of them. There are more than this. Acts 2.23 You have taken it with wicked hands have crucified and slain. Acts 5.32 The God of our fathers has raised up His Son, Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. 1 Corinthians 2.8 Talking about the princes of the world, if they had known who Jesus was, they would not have crucified the King of glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.15 About the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, etc. Killed. They said His blood be on us and on our children. Why weren't you afraid to lift up your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? They took Him and nailed Him to a tree. Why was He there? He's there because of your sins and my sins. And if that doesn't humble your heart, I don't know what can. But if the Holy Spirit delivers that to you, might you come to faith in Jesus Christ today and look at the Lamb of Glory, look at the Lord's Anointed One and say, how could it be that I would be responsible for the death of Christ? How could I have destroyed the Lord of Glory? And yet the words come back from and off the cross by the Lord Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Anointed One. Now that Anointed One has shared His anointing with us. Do you see yourself as an anointed one? In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 1 John 2 tells us that we have an unction from the Holy One. 1 John 2 again says the anointing which you have received abides in you. Again, the word anointing. Second Corinthians one twenty one. He has anointed us. He has established us and anointed us with you. We're the anointed ones. Now look at Saul was able. Excuse me. David was able to look at Saul as the anointed one. 
Sometimes we look at each other more in the flesh than we do in the spirit. And that's where the conflict occurs between Christians and Christians. The last people on earth that should have conflictions with one another. Because we're in the same family. We've got the same anointing. We belong to the King of Kings. We are one in Christ. And we are one with one another. David, in a sense, displays this kind of reverence towards an anointed one. Paul, writing to the different churches in his letters, wants to convey that to the church in the way in which they minister to one another and how they interrelate to one another. His expectation is that they would recognize each other as those who are anointed ones. Talks about the weak brother for whom Christ died. If you stumble some brother or sister, you are stumbling one for whom Christ died. There couldn't be a higher price value put on that person. The highest price tag that you have on you personally is that Christ has died for you. That's what makes you so valuable. You're one for whom Christ died. Imagine that. Sometimes people take other people's places and take the, 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 the punishment that they should take. And we're very appreciative of that. Someone pays a bill that we couldn't pay. Someone helps us out in a circumstance that we didn't have the ability to accomplish. But Christ died a death for us that we could have never satisfied God for the penalty of. Those are the ones, we are the ones for whom Christ died We are those anointed ones. Might we have that charitable spirit like David as well? It says in Titus 3, I believe it's verse 2, it says, Speak evil of no one. Put that on your your refrigerator. Uh, Husbands and wives, we can go back and forth and backstab other Christians because we're talking in sort of a closed circle here about someone or other. I want to be judgmental about myself in those areas. I don't want to speak evil because the Bible tells me not to. Now that's not to say I can't be objectively critical. There's a necessity for that as well. I'm not saying that we just whitewash everything. But sometimes our language and our thoughts are malicious. And I believe that's what the Lord would would cause us to refrain ourselves from engaging in malicious language that is wanton, that that is out sort of it's slaying as it were our brother our anointed sister we we need to back off from that we need to be very careful and boy thinking about the life of david and the person of david and i hope you're getting some benefit out of this that he is in this case certainly as again i repeat what th robinson says about him if i can find that line So much for my note organization. Here we go. We know nothing of David that presents him in a better light. A better light. This shows what was in David's heart. This shows why David would not before plunge that sword into the body of Saul and easily have eliminated his enemy from him. He took the humble place. And as a result, when we get to the next chapter, and please read on if you would, if you'd like to get the most benefit out of sermons, read along with what the preacher is going to be preaching on. 
I think that's good field for the Word to be sown into. And you'll see that David now all of a sudden comes into the limelight. Now David says, Lord, what would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? And then David gets the public recognition. Before honor is humility. David lived a life of humility. Granted, there was mistakes that he made, flaws that he had, but it was basically a life that was forced to have to flee from Saul. But he left it up to the Lord to remove Saul's life Then, rather than him taking it in his own hands. And as a result, and as we read further on, we'll see how God blessed David. Now the true anointed one comes to the forefront and then he gets recognition in Hebron and then in Jerusalem and he's anointed by them, which by the way is three anointings. He's anointed by Samuel, he's anointed by those in Hebron, and he's anointed by those in Jerusalem. How non-coincidental that is. Just like the Lord anointed at his birth, at his baptism, and at his exaltation. We have a wonderful type here of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank You for Your precious Word. Lord, what a treasure house we have in the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we often feel that we just scratch the surface of the meanings of some of these truths. And Lord, it's often very difficult for us to get to the depths, Lord, to which You intended the Scriptures to be understood. And we pray, Lord, that You would illuminate our hearts so that we can profit from the reading, our daily readings, our public readings, the preaching messages from the Word of God, that, Lord, we may grow in grace and knowledge of You. And, Lord, we pray for anyone here in this room that has heard the voice of You, O God, speaking to them about their salvation, about their guilt and responsibility for Jesus' being put to the cross, that they were the ones that slew Him and took Him and put Him on the tree and had Him crucified. Oh God, might the Holy Spirit work in their souls and give them faith to believe on You as their personal Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, have mercy, we pray, in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.